Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. The question is, what does it mean to have a childlike faith? And a lot of people at New City Church grew up in um, conservative or evangelical traditions. And a lot of times in those traditions, um, uh, there is usually a sermon a couple times a year that talks about childlike faith in a very particular way. And you might hear something like, um, I don't want to get into politics or climate change or historic interpretation of scripture or evolution or science because I want to have a childlike faith. And what I mean by that is in these settings, the biblical interpretation they're choosing is childlike faith means a suspension of critical thought. So coming to church and asking questions about like, well, what about what science says? Or what about my Muslim neighbor? Like, are they going to be going? Are they condemned? Or what about um, the, uh, the queer child that I have? Like, all of these questions... Uh, are kind of like tamped down with this biblical interpretation because it's saying you're thinking you're you're trying to interpret something that you can't possibly understand. The Bible is telling you that this is the way that it is, and uh, and childlike faith means simply taking the first literal reading that you have of scripture and and trusting that that is true, no matter how outrageous or oppressive and violent that interpretation is. That's um, one way that some of my siblings in Christ have chosen to interpret the Bible. Um, but I think the power of this sermon series and the power of, of New City coming together to have these conversations is um, it begs the question of how did we arrive at that biblical interpretation in the first place? How is it that that became the only option, that childlike faith was kind of like the ace in the pocket that beat everything else. Oh, you want to talk about something that makes me uncomfortable? Childlike faith. You have to believe the Bible in this one particular way. How do we get there? And I think that <laughs> um, in order to kind of backtrack, we have to ask ourselves, which ancestors are you traveling with? This entire sermon series, we've been asking, uh, who are the spiritual ancestors, the people who have gone before you, who have informed your faith? Who are the people who even centuries ago, started practicing a certain type of faith that impacted the world in a way that you are now an inheritor of. Like, how, what, who, whose lineage are we stepping into here? And like we talked about at Christmas, sometimes you choose and voluntarily carry forward certain lineages, and sometimes you set down certain traditions, and that's what it means to be a person of faith. We saw Jesus' disciples doing this all the time. There are certain Jewish traditions that Jesus was like, yep, we're going to keep this. And there are other ones that Jesus was like, we're either going to set this down or reinterpret it in such a way that we're radically changing our posture towards it. Um, for example, Jesus relating to the Sabbath. <laughs> He's like, Sabbath is supposed to serve humanity, not humanity serving Sabbath. That is a dramatic shifting in how the Jewish community held that tradition for so long. And it was a very important and beautiful tradition. And so I think it begs the question of what ancestors are we choosing to travel with? And one of the ancestors that I really want to emphasize that, uh, that who didn't make it into the 
devotional, the daily devotional, but who I think is such an important witness for our time is that Archbishop does the tutu. Pictured here in the sassy pink. Uh, in the middle there, this is the march of uh, the day that Nelson Mandela was freed. Arch Archbishop Tutu um, was in uh, South Africa, and he grew up and started doing activism work under apartheid South Africa, where there was increasingly violent racial disparity, where um, a light-skinned European-descended minority had political economic and social power wielded over the black-skinned uh, uh, members of society. And it was outrageous. It was, it was violent and it was um, unreformable, untweakable. Like, like little micro-attempts to change this here or there weren't working. And so, um, so a lot of, of uh, Archbishop Tutu's career trajectory was in response to apartheid. And one of the things that, if you look at the tributes or the, the things that people use to honor uh, Archbishop Tutu, is that they remark that despite the fact that he was truly on the front lines, like truly someone who was in the fray, calling out systems as evil, calling out particular parties or the way that things were going, like being very sharp and, and precise about his political critique. You know, he wasn't just like, one day heaven is coming and, and therefore we don't have to talk about politics at all. He somehow was like able to stay so engaged and be so joyful of a person. If you look at any of his interviews, he is smiling and laughing. There are many videos of him just like dancing around and enjoying himself. He's like friends with uh, the Dalai Lama. Like there's a lot, of, they wrote a a book on joy together. Like somehow there is a certain spark in uh, Desmond Tutu that during his life conveys such a joy that you don't often see with people who are so on the front lines committed to social activism or really changing society. A lot of times uh, we see folks who are like kind of numb. heard similar stories from all over the country and world where there are viewers of, of New City Church. And yet, these two unlikely things were able to live together in, um, in Desmond Tutu. And so I think it's worth visiting his life and career to be able to understand what this text about having a childlike faith entails. Um, so there's three things that I want to observe here, uh, which was kind of like uh, a confessional uh, a storytelling, a community, uh, uh, everyone came together and told their stories of the abuses that happened during apartheid. And these were hard stories, all these were gripping stories that even Desmond Tutu himself had to like pause the proceedings because he was crying so much from hearing the stories of how people were tortured under apartheid. And, um, and he showed us that um, healing a society is kind of like healing a, uh, that, that, folk, that folk medicine on how to heal a snake bite. Y'all ever heard this? If you get, I don't know if this is actually like medically approved, but the folk medicine, your friend
then should try to like suck out the poison and spit it out because it'll still be like near the, <laughs> the base of the injury. As I'm saying this, I'm pretty sure that I saw an article that said don't do that. But it's like the metaphor is still true where it's like we have to move towards the roar, we have to move towards the pain, we have to extract the poison in order for us to be able to live in a healed society, which feels very counterintuitive, especially for folks who have just endured so much trauma. It's like, uh, you know, let's just try to leave that behind us as soon as we can. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said, um, if we don't unearth the deep pain that happened here, then we're always going to be we're always going to be haunted by it. Um, consider how the United States is still still we're discovering um, buried stories of how Native Americans were treated in um, uh, in schools, how Native Americans were uh, decimated by the pioneers. Like like there was no truth and reconciliation commission at that moment, and I think that we are kind of like reaping the bitter fruits of that decision now. And so in contrast to that, the, the truth and reconciliation process is trying to say we have to move towards the pain, we have to um, run towards the roar in order for our society to be healed. And this is especially important because they were moving, they were shifting governmental systems, like, the, like they were moving towards democratically elected officials, and whenever a society, a, co a whole country, shifts um, a, a decision-making body, it's, it's very ripe for, um, for coups and corruption. And so part of the reason uh, some commentators mentioned that the truth and reconciliation process was, was so important was because it allowed uh, the new system to not simply recreate the same evils of the old system. And that's the benefit of telling the truth, is, is that there's a way for the old ways to stay actually in the past and for a new system to happen. And I think that this is uh, profoundly biblical. When we consider the word truth, and then we put it in conversation with, I mean, so many verses in the Bible about truth. Just one of them that really stuck out to me for this context was um, from James, those who make peace sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. Those who make peace sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. And so already we're seeing how truth, peace, and justice are all in this like important biblical trifecta that's saying we're never actually going to find peace unless there is justice. We're never actually going to find justice unless we tell the truth. We're never actually going to arrive at truth unless there's a commitment to peace. So we see how like this is kind of like a like a circuit, an energetic circuit that's driving us towards a new world. And if we remove any one of the parts of that circuit, then the electrical current will stop. If we try to create justice without telling the truth, we'll never create justice. If we try to create peace without telling the truth, we'll never create peace. Another way to say that is, uh, there will be no peace until we reckon with the pain. There will be no peace until we reckon with the pain. And of course this is true in your individual life. In, in, uh, this is true for your journey with your mental health, with your spirituality. Of course this is true for understanding our story. Um, uh, I was just listening to a podcast this week about trauma healing and how one of the... Um, one of the tendencies of trauma is uh, people who experience trauma and aren't able to metabolize it begin to define their lives by the trauma. And trauma healing comes from like being able to 
you know, we can't make the traumatic event go away, but we can tell a different story about it or relate to it differently in a way that allows the trauma, traumatic event to be a little bit more metabolized. And there's no way to do that until we reckon with pain. However, this isn't just true on an individual level. This is also true on a social level. This is also true when we're looking at differentials of power. Uh, this is something that I was talking about earlier in worship, actually, about the repair process and how harm is inevitable in a diverse room, and therefore the repair process has to um, take that into account. The thing about um, uh, moving toward the pain in society, though, is it is entirely insufficient for us to look at pain of marginalized people on an individual level and assume that these patterns are meaningless. Um, and so, like, as we start to look at the pain of people experiencing homelessness or the pain of people who have uh, suffered violence into racism, we start to see that not only were those very um, interpersonal interactions, but also systemic interactions. And so, um, the pain of the marginalized is necessarily political. The pain of the marginalized is necessarily political because there are certain systems that led up to interpersonal conflict. You know, of course, just to uh, continually uh, uh, re-story how we are understanding the George Floyd uprisings that happened walking distance away from here, um, of course racism was how uh, former officer Chauvin and George Floyd interacted with each other. Of course racism was present in that interaction. But racism was also present in a system that um, did not show accountability to Chauvin, uh, even though he had had multiple uh, reports and complaints about, about police brutality, a system that viewed the correction to harm as police, more policing like, in itself, a philosophical choice. Um, and, and like all of the economic system of, of the financial interest of all these things, all of these things uh, these giant micro-nebulous kind of hurts my brain to even think about it things all became crystallized in the death of, and murder of George Floyd. And that's what I mean by um, the pain of the marginalized and necessarily political, is that we can't just heal interpersonal reactions, even though as important as that is, we also have to look at healing systems that set people up to harm each other. And until we look at the pain of marginalized people will never have the key truth that we require in order to change our system. This is one of the reasons why I believe Jesus constantly moved towards the marginalized, because the marginalized have a certain perspective of the shortcomings of society that is required in order for the kingdom of God to happen. Um, so, uh, yeah, the pain of the marginalized is necessarily political. The second thing that I wanted to talk about as far as childlike faith um, uh, is that, oh yeah, we're talking about childlike faith. I have this whole metaphor. Okay, well, we'll just zoom through it. But you know how, like, when a kid comes up to you, let's say you're um, the adult supervisor at recess, a kid comes up to you crying, says, so-and-so stole my toy. That requires a certain type of like interpersonal negotiation, like, okay, well, let's say sorry, or let's try to figure out what happened here between these two kids. Even children understand that. Um, however, there's a different type of intervention required if a kid comes up to you and says, um, this, the game that we're playing is fundamentally rigged, or there are rules that are fundamentally unfair. Uh, in that response, that 
things necessarily have to look at the rules of how that game is structured. And by the way, in society, the rules of how the game is structured are called laws. So we need to reform the unfair game as much as we need to, to say sorry and all of that. So moving on to the second point of does it teach a childlike faith? Like children, we must change our ways when we learn how to do better. I think um, it's so powerful to see the children in my life, the children of New City, every day kind of receiving different feedback uh, when, uh, when someone says like, oh, when you, when you say or do that, it makes this person feel like this. Maybe you should, um, there's a different way that you could grab that toy from them or, or um, ask them to play or not play. Um, and children are constantly adapting. It's amazing. Have you seen this? Like, children are constantly adapting. For some parents, perhaps not adapting quite fast enough, but constantly learning, constantly adapting. And I love, um, I love that about children. And I think it's something that we can adopt as adults as well. And specifically, I want to talk about Desmond Tutu's relationship to climate change. Um, Desmond Tutu is someone of profound faith, and yet somehow his profound faith did not contradict his willingness to engage science and to engage the climate change discourse. He was very outspoken about climate change. In fact, in one opinion piece that he wrote, he said, who can stop the climate change? Who can stop it, the climate change? Well, we can, you and I, and it's not just that we can stop it, we have a responsibility to do so. It is a responsibility that begins with God commanding the first human inhabitants of the Garden of Eden to till and to keep it, to keep it, not to abuse it, not to destroy it. I want to just pause and really celebrate how the biblical engagement that's going on here, because climate change was not in the, in the discourse during biblical times, and yet Desmond Tutu was able to put biblical wisdom in conversation with scientific facts to create an ethic of how to move in the world. This is so different from saying, like, if I, um, I'm participating in culture, I'm participating in society, uh, and not staying true to the gospel if I am part of any of these conversations. That's, it's, it's such a far cry, and I think that this is so much more helpful. A key tool that I want to um, teach all of you all on-site and online is something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Do any of you know the Wesleyan Quadrilateral? Okay, I see some nods. So the Wesleyan Quadrilateral uh, is simply saying that uh, uh, we need to put four things in conversation with each other in order to discover God. This is uh, the Wesleyan Quadrilateral meeting created by John Wesley, who was the person who started the breakoff movement called United Methodism. He didn't know it was a breakoff movement, but sometimes things get that way. Um, so that just means simply putting scripture, tradition, reason, and experience in conversation with each other to be able to understand and discern the will of God and how God is moving in the world. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Um, and some of you folks who didn't come from a Wesleyan background might be like, well, wait a second, but where in the Bible itself does it say that we can put scripture, tradition, reason, and experience in conversation with each other? How do we even know that this is what God wants? And I think um, the irony is, in, in the Advent story, in like this Christmas story that we just celebrated, we see all of these things in play with each other. Because, after all, what would the Christmas story be without the scripture of the prophets, Isaiah and so many other prophets, 
um, uh, speaking and writing uh, hundreds or a thousand years before Jesus was born. Scripture was thoroughly infused into the understanding of the Bible. But so was tradition. Um, where would we be if Zechariah didn't go into the temple, which was built, founded upon a Jewish tradition, and offer up incense as prayers, which is part of the Jewish tradition, had an encounter with God, and that changed uh, how we fathered um, John the Baptist. Like, all of this is, all of this, uh, of Jesus' ministry is couched in not only scripture, but also tradition, like certain ways that things were done. And where would um, we be if, if the, wise, the three wise men didn't use reason? Um, like, do you, I don't know, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Christmas story, so like, um, there's this one moment where there are three wise men who are like, hey, we uh, saw a star and we think that there's a new, like, king coming, can we go visit him? And the, the ruler at the time was like, um, yes, go ahead and why don't you tell me where he is so I can pay homage to him. Subtext, he was going to murder that baby so that he could remain in power. And the wise men used reason to put two and two together and said, we're not going to obey the authority, the governmental authority. We're going to subvert the direct commands of the governmental authority because we feel like it doesn't really make sense <laughs> for, for us to introduce him to this new king. And I think that's so powerful because God wants you to think. God wants you to be a critical thinker. God gave you an amazing capacity to think through all of these things. And we're, like the scripture says, we're supposed to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that includes our mind. So if we're not critically thinking, we're not honoring God with the mind that God gave us. So, uh, so reason is important. And of course, where would uh, we be in the Christmas story if Mary didn't have this experience of the angel Gabriel, and then she wrote the Magnificat, which became one of the most important theological treaties <laughs> like in the New Testament. So, like, all of these things can be put in conversation together, and that doesn't make us less Jesus-y or less Bible-y, that makes us more Jesus-y and more Bible-y. And that, I think, is an important way to maintain childlike faith. And lastly, like children, we must daily connect with the holy. I added this one because I know that there's a lot of progressives at New City Church who up until this point are like, ha oh, ha like, I am already up with the climate change discourse, I already believe in reading scripture critically, like, I already am already there, and I'm like kind of looking down at these um, other Christians, and I'm like, I'm all right, and, uh, and I'm looking down at this other tradition. Which, like, okay, whatever. There's a place for critique. However, um, that group that I have in my head thinking of tend to lose track of how important spiritual practices are for life. Desmond Tutu took Eucharist, like the communion, every day, said one professor in Cape Town. Every day he spent time in prayer. Every day he was engaging scripture and thinking of the stories of he spoke a lot about uh, the prophet Jeremiah and how Jeremiah didn't really want to speak up, but the situation required it. And so he showed up to his conversations inspired by the prophet Jeremiah. The spiritual practices deeply infused in Desmond Tutu so thoroughly that he was uh, able to show up in a very particular way because of it. 
And as an aside, like I said, um, that did not prevent him from having friendships with people of other faith. And I like to think about it like, it's not like he, it's not that Christians should have friendships with people of other faith despite being Christian. It's that Christians should have friendships with people of other faith because of Jesus, because of Christianity. This feels so obvious to me. When we read through the New Testament, through the Gospels, Jesus is talking to a lot of people of a lot of different faith. And of course, he, there's an invitation, come follow me. Of course, he talks about the kingdom of God. But like, not everyone. <laughs> there are some folks that Jesus met that he was in community with who didn't identify as Christian, who didn't follow him, that he was just in community with. And I think that that's a powerful witness um, in, a, in a fruit of a f- deep faith when you can feel confident enough in your faith that you're not threatened by uh, people of other faith that you need to dominate and control their faith journey. And ironically, I think that's how we can create more Christians in the world. But um, I think that Desmond Tutu shows that. And I think it's funny because in the tributes to him, even and in the discourse on the Dalai Lama, we see people saying like, it's so nice that they're religious, but they're talking about a love that applies to all people, or a, uh, um, a peace that applies to all people. And I just feel like that word but is so patronizing and demeaning to Desmond Tutu's faith. Like, he was able to show up to the most significant peacemaking process in the modern era, not despite the fact that he was a person of faith, but truly because his prayer practices and his spiritual practices truly changed him. And this, I suppose, is, is one of the key foundations to having a childlike faith, is to have a prayer life that offers up incense to God, that lets all of your hopes, desires, dreams, and cares lift up to God, so that God can do her holy thing and just kind of compost it and rework it, I know I'm mixing metaphors, and then send it back in a way that changes your life. Listen, I know that this has been a hard pandemic, and I know that a lot of folks are in a, in a really tough place. Well, maybe they don't feel like they're themselves anymore. I know a lot of folks who feel like it's so hard to show up with motivation for anything, or it's so hard to continue to show up for the fight, or it's so hard to relax and kind of like uh, uh, switch down. And I just, you know, it, I, I feel so much love for these folks who are like, I, I feel like I'm, I can't really quite be myself. And, the, and one of the greatest gifts of prayer is that you discover that that not feeling like yourself is not the deepest truth in your life. Um, no matter how much you don't feel like yourself, your heart is still capable of healing, still capable of loving, and it's really easy to forget that. And when things are going so fast, there's so much traffic, there's so much noise, there's so much stress, injustice, like true violence and cruelty, it's so easy to lose track of ourselves and, and to kind of feel like we're almost numb to our own lives. And through the practice of prayer, it's like a spade that can dig us a little bit deeper. Like we can kind of sink our hands into soil a little bit more, and remember that our soul—this like uh, made in the image of God part of ourselves—is so perfectly 
connected to God so perfectly desiring God that God's perfect love can can touch base with that anytime we want that we are capable of experiencing God's love anytime through the practice of prayer as well as worship and reading scripture and if we get in touch with that love every day imagine how that would change how you show up to the world Maybe you don't need to imagine because we see it in the life of Desmond Tutu. We see how he engaged, uh, what we at New City uh, talk about a lot is inward transformation flowing into outward transformation. So if you can imagine your finger tracing the, uh, the edges of these hexagons, your inward life flows into your outward life and then back to your inward life. This is what we're going to be talking about, by the way, in a prayer sermon series that's starting up on January 23rd. You will not want to miss that. Make sure to come to the prayer sermon series. But until then, we just have this spiritual ancestor who is showing us, not with discourse, but with action, what a childlike faith looks like. That um, we can adapt, that we can move towards pain, and that ultimately, through connecting with God, we can show up and dance and f- feel joy even as we're striving against the deepest injustices in our world. I believe that it is possible because someone has gone before us and shown the way. Amen? Amen.